Good morning. Our first scripture reading is from Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 3, and our second scripture reading will be John 14, verses 25 to 31. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. John 14, verses 25 to 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The word of the Lord. We begin this morning a study of First Peter. As I said a couple of weeks ago, we heard first from John in our study of 1 John, and then we went to Paul's letter uh, to the Colossian church. And so I thought it would be good if we heard from the other great leading apostle, Peter. So we'll be looking now at this uh, little letter that is so rich and full. Uh, We're just going to look at the first two verses this morning. Again, uh, it's easy when you start a study to kind of cruise through the opening greetings saying, yeah, 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 let's get to the meat. And it's easy at the end to just sort of dismissively say, okay, now he's just saying goodbye to everybody. And if we do that, we, uh, we risk missing some of the richest parts of these New Testament letters. Uh, I remember when I studied under Gordon Fee that he would sometime say to us, my challenge to you this year is to go back and carefully study all the verses in your Bible that you did not underline. (laughs) So let's not go cruising through things that we might be inclined to just forget. So the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied 
to you the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, the early church was unanimous in ascribing this letter indeed to Peter. And uh, even though some modern commentators want to try to say, oh, this was obviously written much later, uh, it's an example of what C.S. Lewis used to call chronological snobbery. The, the idea that at 2,000 years removed, we have a better idea of who wrote these letters than did the people who actually sat at their feet and knew them and bore witness to it. But the question is not about who wrote the letter, it's about just to whom exactly was he writing. Now he tells us that he was writing to Christians, obviously, in a whole series of cities clustered in what was in New Testament times called Asia Minor, but what we know today as Turkey. And these cities pretty well represented this large landmass of Asia Minor. So he's talking to a large area of people, but the question is this. He addresses them as elect exiles of the dispersion. And that's the way that the Jewish people talked about themselves. And he also later in the letter at times will say, be careful how you live before the Gentiles. And so some of the early commentators thought, well, clearly he was writing just to Jewish Christians. But um, increasing commentators recognize that he said things in this letter that no Jew would ever say of other Jews. And so clearly he is addressing a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles alike. For example, just two verses. Verse 14 of chapter 1, he writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's how Jews talk to Gentiles. Talk to them about the passions of their former ignorance. You didn't grow up with the oracles of God. You didn't know the things of God. And again, 18, verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, no one would say of Israel that you inherited futile things from your forefathers. There it's you haven't been faithful to the rich blessings from them. Why do I bear down on this? For this reason. Two weeks ago, we looked at Acts 10. And I suggested that that served as a kind of second conversion of Peter. A conversion to the mission that went beyond the Jews. And his life was transformed when he had that vision of the sheep being lowered with all kinds of non-kosher food on it. And he's told to eat, and he says it's unclean. And God says to him, and he has the vision three times, and three times God says to him, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. And then he said, get ready, because there are some people coming to get you downstairs, and I want you not to say they're unclean, because they're Gentiles. I want you to go with them. And so. Peter was transformed in that encounter. And I say all of that to say he is now addressing the church of Jesus Christ, those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And what does he say to us? He calls us elect exiles of the dispersion. 
I've said this to you before, but I think particularly in these divisive times, it's crucial for those of us who love our country as we should. Every person should love the place where God has put them and where their heritage lies. And, and we love the world best by first loving it right around us, all those that are there. But nonetheless, some of us battle in the culture wars as if this were where our permanent citizenship is. And it is not. We who are in Christ, wherever we are, whatever tribe, tongue, people, nation we belong to, however deeply we love and want to serve our country, must realize that in the ultimate scheme of things, we are aliens and exiles, sojourners in this world. And our true home is in what's coming, the new cosmos, the new heaven, the new earth. When the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, that's where our final destiny is. And our efforts here are to be aimed toward there. When we forget it, we forget who we are. It's a crisis of identity. When we remember it, we can walk with a kind of quiet confidence in spite of whatever is going on around us. And we can truly love people well because the ultimate destiny of things does not depend on my candidate getting elected or my way prevailing within the culture. In fact, I hate to say it, but the church, I really hate to say it because I love comfort and ease uh, and I've spent enough time in China with Chinese Christians and India with Indian Christians now under the BJP to see how hard it is when you're persecuted for your faith. I don't want that, but I'll tell you, there's a different character to their life and witness than there is to mine. I read books about suffering Christians and I say, oh Lord, to be like those men. I wonder if I have any fresh croissants. You know, it's the comfort and ease. And he wants us to remember who we are and to identify in the deepest sense as aliens and exiles of the dispersion, awaiting our true homeland. Okay. And then what is he, what is this letter all about? Well, his final statement, grace and peace be multiplied to you. What is grace? It is God's unmerited favor. It cannot be earned, it cannot be deserved. If it were earned or deserved, it wouldn't be grace. It would be justice, we'd be getting our due, it would be our payment. And so he's saying, I want you to know and taste the grace of God. But the only way that we know and taste the grace of God is when, like Peter, graphically in the Gospels, has to come face to face with how broken we are. And I love studying a letter from Peter because next to Judas Iscariot, he was obviously the most broken of all the disciples, at least the one whose brokenness is displayed to us most clearly. And unlike Judas, I mean, at least Judas was planning to betray Jesus. Peter was bragging the night before his betrayal, even if all of these guys betray you, I won't, I'll go with you to death. And before the night was over, he had betrayed the Lord three times. I don't know about you, but 
I thank God for this guy because I know exactly how he felt when he woke in the morning and realized the depth of his betrayal. And over and over and over again, you and I who make bold protestations of our faith, declarations of it, disappoint ourselves profoundly in getting caught up and wrapped up and angry or greedy or lusty for things that are passing away. So, this is who it is. Okay, what does grace lead to? It leads to peace, shalom. Being right with God, being right with each other. Here's the question, how do we get there? How am I to know and taste and experience the reality of God's grace and through his grace, that peace? And he answers it in four ways. It's a, what we would call later, though the word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, Trinitarian doctrine was an attempt to understand verses like these two, particularly verse two, because here we have the persons of the Godhead, the God who is one God, not many gods, and yet who in some mysterious fashion reveals himself in three persons. And so just look with me briefly at these four moves that he makes and how crucial they are for us in remembering our salvation. He first says, through the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, the Greek word for foreknowledge is one that we know well because it's come right over into the English language. It's prognosis. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. Pro, before, to know something before. Prognosis. Our problem is this. It's easy for us to say, okay, God knew us in the past, and then to think that he loves me and has made me his based on what he knew about me. No, he just would look from before time and see what a splendid guy I'd turn out to be, you know? And of course, knowledge was not Greek, this is a Greek word, but it's Jews writing. And for Jews, knowledge was personal knowledge. In fact, philosophers, since the 1950s at least, have been coming back to this and realizing that our whole modern era idea that we could stand and have a God's eye view of things like Descartes, we could look and, no, no. Michael Polanyi, the great Oxford mathematician and philosopher in his book, Personal Knowledge, argued, I think, conclusively that all true knowledge is personal knowledge that rests on faith. Even mathematics, the so-called purest form, rests on unprovable axioms that we receive on faith. We can't do math without accepting axioms that we can't prove. All of science, all of thought rests on certain presuppositions that we accept in order now. Knowledge to the Jews was personal. It didn't mean that God knew things about you. That's a Greek idea. The Jewish idea was God knew you in love. It's a loving relationship. And, and I can prove it by just going to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, when the Son of Man comes, 
There will be those who will say, Lord, Lord, we were Presbyterian pastors. We preached through First Peter. You know, we did all these things for you. And he said, the Son of Man will say, depart from me. I never, what? I never knew you. He doesn't mean that when the Son of Man appears, some people will come and he'll kind of sit there and go, you know, I'm sorry, could I get your name again? I don't recognize you. That would be a Greek form of knowledge. He's saying, if I know you, it's because I have chosen to put my love and my grace upon you. I knew you from eternity. The Father knew you from eternity and made you his even then in the mystery of his grace. So how do I experience this grace? Well, it's already there. The foreknowledge of God the Father that he loved us and knew us and bore us in his heart even before time. And if you're a parent, you know something about that. When you first found out that if you're a husband, you first found out your wife was pregnant. Woman, you found out you were pregnant. You begin already to fall in love with that child who's growing before you've ever seen that child. You're so ready. You begin to, to get the room ready and to decorate it and to, to tell stories about the things you want to do and the dreams you have. And that is in some, in some way a way in which we're made in God's image. That God loves you that much. What am I saying all this for? Just because so many people think, you know, I, I know Jesus loves me, at least I sing it a lot, but you know, I feel like God's always irritated with me. Uh, because you're always irritated with yourself. And you project that on him. And I want you to know that if you are his, he loved you before time. That's why you are. That's why you're here. Through the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, big word. We think of it always in terms of holiness and being made holy. But the heart of holiness is this. It's not a legalistic idea. It's being set apart for God. It means that he loved you so much that once you came into being by his Spirit, he set you apart in his sight to be his, to belong to him. And if you are now his, it's the spirit that bears everything that Christ accomplished to us. And so he is setting us apart increasingly. He's doing the work of God within us. He's empowering us for the next thing that we'll see in a moment. But again, the scripture warns us and Boy, it's a, it's a caution. The way that the enemy works is toehold, foothold, stronghold. If he can just get a toehold, you know, then he'll begin to clear more space and go for a, ultimately a stronghold that grieves the Holy Spirit because Paul tells us and the author of Hebrews that there is a similar movement away from the power of God that if we're his, 
and yet we're living in active disobedience against him. We grieve the spirit. We then quench the spirit so that we're not experiencing his power. And in the end, if we continue, we outrage the spirit of holiness. And the author of Hebrews tells us, if you're God's child, he's going to discipline you because he loves you. You can't come under his wrath and curse, but you'll come under his fatherly displeasure. So this whole movement, God knew you and loved you before time. He has given you his spirit who now has given you everything that you need in order to be and to do all that he wants of you. He doesn't want you to be someone else. He didn't call you to be Paul or Peter or John. He called you to be the utterly unique person that you are. You are the only you in all of human history. The only confluence of your genes, your gifts, your life experience. And all of that brokenness that you may think keeps you from being the person God would have you be. Remember Peter. It wasn't until he was so profoundly broken that he then was useful to the Lord. I may have shared this with you. I remember one time just going through really hard things with kids. They do that to you. They're a great joy and they also uh, keep you off balance. I was, before the early service, I, I'd been up all night. I was exhausted and I was praying. And I just, I had to go down and start the service. And I just said, Lord, I don't know how I can do this. I don't have anything left to give. And um, I don't hear God speak audibly, but boy, when he tells me something, it's in unmistakable terms. And the Lord just said to me, finally, I've got you where I can use you. You never had anything to give. That was your big mistake. Now would you just let me fill you and use you? So, sanctification of the Spirit. And then two terms about the Son. Sanctifying us for obedience to the Lord Jesus. So the Father has loved us before time. He's, it's the Spirit who is now increasingly setting us apart for service and empowering us and teaching us and growing us up and helping us to understand the scriptures. In order that we might obey, remember the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, where Jesus said, said make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Trinitarian formula, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Now this isn't a dull sort of, he gives us a bunch of rules and being a Christian is following them. This is somebody saying, I want you to follow me. It's dangerous out there and I know the path of life and I want you to follow me now. If I, you know, I'm going into the wilderness with a guide, I don't mind at all if that guide says to me, I want, you to I want you to keep me in sight. I want you to stay behind me. I want you to do everything I tell you to do. I know that my getting where I want to go safely depends on that. 
And we can't say, I hear Christians say, he's my savior, but I just haven't made him Lord yet. The confession of the early church was not Jesus is savior, it's Jesus is Lord. Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. That was the whole confession. Imagine if I, who have a Tennessee driver's license, was pulled over outside the church for speeding, and uh, I tell the guy, I'm from Tennessee, you know? I'm just here, I'm, I, I don't acknowledge the sovereignty of, you know, Maryland. Would he go, oh, excuse me? No. Nor is the Lord impressed with people who say, I want the good stuff, but come see me later about following me. Bonhoeffer, again, from discipleship, he said, only those who believe obey, and only those who obey believe. And he doesn't mean that we are in this Christian perfectionism and we always do it right. We don't. But there's a new trajectory to life, and you and I who are parents know the difference between an obedient and a disobedient child. An obedient child sometimes disobeys, sometimes screws up, but the trajectory is one of obedience. A disobedient child actually sometimes does the right thing, but the trajectory is rebellion. And God wants us to be believing him sufficiently that we're on a trajectory of obedience. But, and here's the final point, we don't always do it. We blow it. We sin. We fall. We get back in the mud. Remember, I think I've used before that Charles Haddon Spurgeon's great illustration, though he preached at the largest church in London. He was a country boy, and he used to bring country illustrations in. And he said, here's the difference. Uh, he said, a lamb hates mud. It tries to stay as far away from mud holes as it can. Every now and then one will slip into the mud, but it's miserable. It gets out. It wants to get clean as quickly as it can. Whereas a pig is looking for the mud. Slides in, he's happy. At the risk of possibly sounding insulting, would you just ask yourself, am I more like a lamb or like a pig in such matters? Sometimes we get in the mud, and he says, and sprinkling with his blood. Because you and I, at the end of the day, can always again Come home. Come home to the Father. No matter how far we have run, no matter how hard we've fallen. Like Peter, who denied him three times, apostatized, and then within a few weeks, filled with the Holy Spirit, was the mighty preacher of Pentecost. Because he washes us clean through his sacrifice on our behalf. I'm done. I just ask you, what's holding you back from being the person you once thought you'd be when you first said to Jesus, yes, I need you, I want to follow you? What's keeping you back from being that man, that woman? Here it all is. If you ever desired that, it's because of the love of the Father drawing you. He's given you his spirit. That's why you feel bad about it now. You wouldn't care if you didn't have his spirit. 
and he's enabling you now to begin again following Jesus on the road of life. And when you fail and when you fall, to know the sweet washing of his blood, his sacrifice for sin. Father, thank you that you've loved us before our kin had even come to this land. From the ancient of days and before the ancient of days, you knew us and you loved us. So pour out your spirit afresh upon us that we might walk in joyful, glad obedience to your Son and know daily fresh washing in the sacrifice for sin. You've given us everything to know grace and peace. So may we taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name.